Atamaria, welcome to First Up. It's Ramere. That's Thursday, the 9th of June. Cornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, we go back to the UK for the latest on Boris Johnson with our man on the scene, Henry Riley. Jacinda Ardern and Grant Robertson head off to Australia today to meet Prime Minister Albanese. We speak with our Deputy PM ahead of that. And after having spent 19 years in prison and 36 years labelled as a murderer, Alan Hall's name is cleared at last. I caught up with his brother Jeff after yesterday's momentous Supreme Court decision. The first thing Alan wanted when uh, we got on the plane and the, the tarts came through the aisle, you have Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, boy. First wine he had in 40 years. Welcome to First Up, Cornathan Rarere Aho, the Russian Foreign Minister, is rejecting suggestions that Russia is effectively waging war on the world's food supply. No, no, he says. Sergei Lavrov has been in Turkey to discuss the movement of wheat out of Ukrainian ports, which are currently under siege by Russian forces. The meeting comes as Russia concentrates its effort in Ukraine on the eastern region of Donbass. The BBC's Joe Inwood has this report. The Donbass is burning. This is Lysyshansk, just a few miles away from the current front line and a city under constant bombardment. The sign reads, I love college, but there are no students left and nowhere to study. Lysyshansk has been left a ghost town. Most of those who remain do so because they have no choice. Every day there are bombings and every day something burns, a house, a flat, and there's nobody to help me. I tried to go to the city authorities but nobody's there. Everyone has run away. They abandoned the people. Go away too, they say. But where am I going to go at 70 years old? If Yuri were to look to the east, this is the site that would greet him. The neighbouring city of Severodonetsk, taking the full weight of Russia's invasion. Ukrainian authorities say they are holding on here, but only just. It's expected that the Russians will increase the intensity of their attacks over the coming days. For many, the fact that Russia has not already captured the eastern Donbass region is in part down to these soldiers, the defenders of Mariupol, the southern port city which held out against the Russians for more than 80 days. When they surrendered, there were hopes they might be part of some sort of prisoner exchange. But that now seems a dwindling hope. It's reported that a thousand of them have been sent to Russia for investigations, with fears they could be put on trial. It comes as Russia's foreign minister visited Turkey, an attempt to find a diplomatic solution to the global food crisis being caused by the invasion. The West says Russia is entirely to blame. Sergei Lavrov says the Ukrainians need to act first. The only way to solve this problem is for Ukrainians to let ships leave their ports. They need to remove mines and provide a safe corridor. But for all the talk of diplomacy, in reality very few people can see a negotiated settlement to this increasingly bitter conflict. Yeah, that was Joe Inwood in Kiev with that report. It's eight and a half past five. We'll go to to the UK right now uh, where they've just seen the biggest daily rise in the price of petrol in 17 years. Joining me now is our guy. We love to hit up Henry. Uh, we're trying to run down his, the battery on his phone this week. He's in London. It's Henry Riley. Morena, Henry. It's nice to be wanted for the first time in my life. <laughs> we'll get on to how you're going to charge that coming up later. But uh, tell me about this. Filling <laughs> up the car, how much? 
Yeah, blooming expensive is the short answer. <laughs> um, we've spoken about the cost of living crisis going on in the UK at the moment. I appreciate it's not just the UK. It's a sort of global issue with the price of crude, the price of um, energy all going up. And this is sort of compounding that ongoing problem that we've got in the UK at the moment where food prices are rising. And as you say today, the biggest rise uh, in 17 years in the price of petrol. It was a rise of more than 2p a litre, which is a huge amount uh, day on day. Now, the RAC is our sort of big motoring group in the UK. And to put this in perspective for families, the average price now of filling up a family car with petrol now costs £99.40. pence, And the fear is it could exceed exceed £100 even by the end of today, the end of Wednesday uh, here in the UK. And it's it's worrying. The price of petrol is going up. The price of diesel is going up. And it's compounding a problem and putting more pressure on the government where obviously you've got Boris Johnson, who's going through his uh, his leadership troubles at the moment. And many yes. people are saying, you know, it's frustrating where you've got a leader who is so focused because he has to be on his own position as prime minister when this big issue of the cost of living crisis is really affecting people. Yeah, cost of living crisis, petrol going up, food going up. Strangely familiar, Henry, strangely <laughs> familiar here. Um, actually, I'll, I'll just jump to the, the Prime Minister. Yesterday morning, obviously, survives, uh, sorry, a couple of mornings ago, survives the vote. What, what's it been like, uh, been like since then? Because I see, you know, he's done the whole get on with the job. Is, is that what's happening now? Uh, his team coming out and doing the, well, we've had the vote, and then the classic now is not the time statement? Yes, basically. So we've had the vote, as you say, and we've had the sort of the worst of it for the time being. I mean, the two big things that are going to plague the prime minister at the moment, he's sort of in a bit of a lull period at the moment. He's just won his vote uh, of no confidence. And so he's sort of okay for the minute. But the two big things that could trip him up over the next few weeks and months, there are two crucial by-elections taking place, two parliamentary by-elections, one in a red wall seat. Now, you remember, Nathan, as we've been speaking, the red wall was, you know, sort of one of those big northern seats which no one expected Boris to win he ended up winning it they love Boris up there or so we thought this will be a real test as to whether they are still uh, they still love the idea of Boris or whether they like the idea of getting Brexit done and then you've got another by-election in the south which is in traditional Tory heartland and they're facing a trouble there from the Liberals so there are two different threats which we'll find out later this month whether Boris can hold on to both of those we've also got another report uh, we had the police inquiry into parties we had uh, Sue Gray's report the civil servant we've got a, a report by the Privileges Committee uh, due to come out in October. So that's a few more months away. But Boris, you know, we, we I remember when we were speaking uh, yesterday, Nathan, we were talking about Boris being quite conciliatory, quite quiet. You know, mm. he's not usual self. And he rectified that at PMQs. He did what Boris thinks he does best. He came out absolutely fighting. He said his political career had barely begun, which I think a lot of people did chuckle about, considering he'd done two <laughs> terms of Mayor of London, and he's actually Prime Minister, and he's now saying his political career has barely begun. So quite what his next ambition is, I've got no idea. Oh. But, um, you know, he, he was giving it large to Sir Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, and, uh, and, and really coming back fighting, and he's determined to make sure that vote of no confidence that we saw earlier in the week uh, be the downfall of him. So in, in boxing world, he's like that late 30s boxer who's like, it's the best shape I've ever been in in my life. I'm on a new training diet. Yeah, That's me. Right. I'm Boris Johnson. I'm back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Brexit was obviously, he oversaw that, and it strikes again. Now, I, I was talking before about, you know, how you're going to charge your phone. This time, uh, the Brexit fight is over charging cables for mobile devices. Tell me about these. 
Yeah, we've had Brexit fights about everything from milk to sausages. There was a big fight about sausages uh, when it came to the differences between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And this is about charging cables. And actually, I you know I have to confess, I'm not a big fan of these USB-C charging cables. They've sort of caught us by surprise and they've come out of nowhere. Um, and the reason this has all come about is the UK government's had to come out now and say that it's not considering copying the EU. The EU, of course, wants a common charging cable, so you don't have, which I suppose is quite a good idea, Lucy. So you don't have different uh, cables for each country when you've got a political union uh, and economic union like the EU is. But the UK is now in a bit of problem because Northern Ireland, which, you know, how many times have we spoken about that on the programme, is a sort of separate entity of the UK and is within the single market framework for goods, for services, for trade. And the problem is, as being part of the single market, it's tied in with the EU. And we could see a situation now where one part of the UK has a slightly different charging cable and, uh, you know, maybe te- sort of a 10 minute drive away has a, has a completely different type of charging cable, despite the fact we're in the uh, in the same country. It's not the last row we'll have over Brexit. I can reassure you there will be plenty more rows about things, probably even less significant than charging cables. It's going to be great. It's like, have you got a USB-C? No, I've got freedom, but I've got these five different charges so i'm not sure which one it is <laughs> it's always there though henry it's always a pleasure thank you very much sir there he is our friend henry riley who joins us live in the uk in fact let's just stay there we'll stay in the uk it's at 14 minutes past five here in new zealand on first up but we're talking about the uk around 70 companies there have a listen to this they're taking part in what's thought to be the world's biggest pilot scheme looking at the benefits of four-day weeks, and that's happening over the next six months. So during this trial, employees will get 100% of their pay for 80% of the hours that they would usually work with the aim of being more productive in this. The BBC's Emma Simpson reports. Instead of working a five-day week, how about pouring it all into four? We're talking 100% of pay for 80% of the hours. This small brewery is about to try. Well, we're a simple business. We have to produce and package the same amount of beer every week that we do now. That's our challenge. The pandemic has already given us a taste of flexible working. This boss believes it's time for a new approach. There's a real sense of this is the way we do things because this is the way we do things. And people don't rethink things. They don't think about what's necessary. And this is a chance for us to do something positive with that. Staff are keen to make it work. How are you going to be more productive? Just being quicker, being more... If I know I've got to get stuff done in four days' time, I'll so enjoy that extra day, I think that'll be a good incentive. British workers do some of the longest hours in Europe, and we're also nothing like as productive as we should be. Could we perform better if we do fewer hours? That's what this big trial is trying to find out. Around 70 firms are taking part. This recruitment company in Exeter started in January. Fiona uses her day off to get chores done so she can enjoy the weekend. If you're happier outside of work, you're happier in work and there there is the productiveness there. Josh likes golf, but the big thing is childcare. Most of the time I spend with my young daughter, um, so again, which frees up a lot of money for nursery fees, which is always helpful. It's all about productivity. The boss, Simon, started a four-day week for a better work-life balance and says profits are actually up. Interestingly, across the board, all of our inputs have gone up. I mean, quite simply, everyone's doing more in less time. People are burning out. Here's the professor leading the research for this global four-day week project. But how realistic is it? 
you can be 100% product as productive in 80% of the time in many workplaces. It's also about the whole economics of this so that you might become 10% more productive, but that your company's also saving on healthcare costs, on hiring new people so that they come out ahead in the end. Packing the work into four days is a tall order, but this brewery hopes it will deliver a better way to work. It's the BBC's Emma Simpson. It is 17 past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity. So I'm keen for your feedback, particularly on that one. And I, w- I want to know this from you. Do you feel like you're more productive after a long weekend? I think that's the easiest way we can relate to it. And we've just come out of a bunch of those. So do you feel like you are more productive after a long weekend? Because I know that, you know, I mean, when the holiday was proposed and it was like, oh, it's going to cost business billions or whatever. But do you feel that that, that, uh, that four-day week you return to is actually one where you feel a little more refreshed and you tear into it and get more done? 2101. Or you can email us first up at rnz.co.nz. Well, earlier we heard about the effect of the war in Ukraine and what it's having on global food supplies. But there's still major logistical issues around getting supplies to war-torn areas of the country itself. For more on this and the other stories making headlines around Europe is our correspondent in Sweden, Dr Anita Purcell-Sherland. Morena, doctor, how are you? Morena, fine, thank you. Okay, um, apparently Uber have up stepped up delivering emergency food in Ukraine. How does, what is, how does this work? Well, the UN World Food Programme is trailing um, Uber-style deliveries of emergency food and water supplies to war-torn areas. Uber says um, it's developed and given the World Food Programme its own private label Uber. Now, many parts of Ukraine are inaccessible to large delivery trucks because of structural damage and threat of attack. So Uber's bespoke platform enables the World Food Programme to coordinate distribution and tracking of emergency supplies, as well as coordinate a fleet of small vehicles and drivers within a 100-kilometre range of the UN warehouses. So is that like like an Uber, like this, this just Prius is driving around in a war zone with like, hello, you know, at the door, like, like a normal Uber delivery type thing, or are they tanks, Almost. or what do we know about them? Almost. Well, basically, the drivers, the drivers and the cars are handpicked by um, the World Food Program, wow. and it's basically just to go into those areas and deliver um, emergency supplies. Yeah, five star review yeah. for them. All right. Um, look, more than one hundred students and teachers, though. This is uh, horrible news. They went missing in the Austrian Alps. Can you tell me about the students and the teachers? Well, the students and teachers from Germany were on a school trip and they were rescued after following an online map that directed them onto an unmarked and difficult trail. Now, Austrian police said the group from Germany was made up of 99 students from ages 12 to 14 and eight teachers. They became stuck on a ridge leading up to Wolmendingerhorn Summit after a teacher found what was described as a classic evening walk using an internet search tool. Now, the summit is 1,000. 990 metres above sea level. So that was their classic evening walk. Wow. Uh, and it, let's just keep it uh, in German. This is horrible sounding. I hope you can update us on this. Overnight, our time, a car's driven into a crowd in Berlin. Have you got the latest there? 
Well, it's a 29-year-old man. He drove into people on a street corner of a busy, you know, on, on a busy street in Berlin our Wednesday morning before getting the car back on the road and then crashing into a shop window around a block further on. Now, according to police, the driver has dual German and Armenian citizenship and lives in Berlin. And he was apparently detained by passers-by before being arrested by a police officer who was near the scene. Police are trying to determine whether he deliberately drove into pedestrians or whether it was an accident, possibly caused by a medical emergency. Yeah, well, let's hope those pedestrians are OK. Um, you know, football, this is interesting. People love a football story. However, this time it's about the former FIFA president, Sepp Blatter, and former UEFA boss, Michel Platini. Uh, they're on trial for corruption. What can you tell us there? Well, Blatter and Platini are charged with fraud over unlawfully arranging a payment of $2 million. The two men are standing on trial after a six-year investigation into the payment that Blatter authorised to be paid from FIFA to Platini in 2011. Blatter and Platini said the payment was for backdated salary, and if found guilty, uh, the two men could face up to five years in jail. Yeah, and, and finally, Belgium's King Philippe has handed back a number of those looted colonial era relics to the Democratic Republic of Congo during a visit. I like that. Yeah, well, the royals, um, King Philippe and Queen Mathilde, um, handed over a mask called Kakungu, previously shown at Belgium's Royal Museum for Central Africa. And the mask was used during healing ceremonies by the Suku community from the southwest of the DR Congo. And the mask is the first of many more artifacts to be turned to be returned from the Royal Museum for Central Africa, where nearly 70% of its art objects were seized during the colonial period. Yeah, uh, good old museums. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland out of Sweden. James Acaster's piece of stand-up comedy on the British Museum is, is is wonderful comedy. Have a look at that one if you want to have a look at that. It's 22 and a half past five. I'm Nathan Rarere. You're with First Up here on RNZ National. So between now and six, we're going to hear from Alan Hall's brother Jeff after his conviction for murder was quashed yesterday after 36 years. Also, we'll be speaking with Grant Robertson, the Deputy Prime Minister, ahead of he and the Prime Minister heading off to Australia today. It's local democracy reporting time. This morning we are in the West Coast with Brendan McMahon, who's with, with me right now. Kia ora, Brendan. How are you? Good morning. How are hey, you? Um, good. I was just I was just a bit freaked out by the weather reports. It sounded like it was going to be bad. Is it okay around where you are? It seems to be okay. I mean, it's raining and we've had some thunder and lightning, but nothing unusual. Okay, that's good stuff here. Hey, tell me about the which might be quite good timing for you to have, have had a look at the Westport Flood Protection Scheme. Um, yep. Tell us about that and what you've been looking at with it. So, well, that's that's ticking over towards um, a proposal to go to the government late this month um, for a, at least a $26 million um, scheme to uh, circle the town of Westwood, about 20 kilometres of flood banks. Um, that's being viewed as a test case by the government uh, for future co-investment um, in flood and climate-associated protection schemes around the country. So it's, there's a lot riding on it. Um, it's, it, yeah, it's big. Yeah. Uh, also, too, I see an approval there in Cape Falwind for a sand mine. How's, how does that go down with the locals? So, so that's been, well, I think I t talked to you about that last time. It, it, it's um, been approved. They got consent um, after a lengthy um, resource consent hearing. Um, but, of course, with every uh, consent, there's a 15-day appeal period, and there's been 
an appeal to the Environment Court by a group of local residents who are, yeah, not feeling too happy about the noise. Right, so it's that, that's their main complaint with that Well, one. that's their main complaint. They reckon that the applicant or, uh, has relied on the ambient noise of the sea, which is close by, to cover up the you know the industrial noise that they'll be creating. But anyway, so those residents, which is their right, have um, appealed that to the court. I'm not sure when it will be heard, but um, it will mean that Western Mineral Sands plans will have to be put on hold, I guess, until until they get a decision on that. Right. Uh, finally, the West Coast Regional Council is having issues with some of its infrastructure projects. What are, what are those? Yeah, well, remember Shovel Ready? Those, um, oh, yeah, Shovel Ready. Yeah, announced after COVID, when COVID first happened. Well, so the, the council received uh, what they applied for and got a I think about $20 million worth of projects to do. Um, but in fact, um, it's taken quite a while for them to get organised to get those done, um, like everywhere. Um, and recently they've um, had to um, call for outside help because they risk losing the money. Um, the government obviously wants some accountability and the council wants to actually get some benefit from that money too. But um, yeah, so that's... They've got some big projects in the coming few years, namely the West Fort One, but also uh, protection uh, projects in, in Hobartika, um fixing the greymouth floodwalls, raising them, um, and building protection at Franz Joseph to um, uh, where the, the Waiho River is um, increasingly um, raising its bed um, with the with the melting of the glacier. So, yeah. Yeah. Brendan, thank you very much uh, for your time this morning again, sir. There we are as we speak about the local democracy reporting program on the West Coast. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Mm, it's the day of our life that we like to call the 9th of June. Big day for acting birthdays. Stars. Look at the stars jumping off the screen at me today. Natalie Portman, 41 years old today. That's right. Four Love and Thunder comes out soon. Have a look for Natalie Portman in that. Michael J. Fox, 61st birthday. And uh, Johnny Depp, remember him from 21 Jump Street? I don't know what he's up to nowadays. Uh, anyway, he's 59 years old, so I, I don't know. I imagine he's still in great shape and just very happy with what he's doing. Donald Fauntleroy Duck was... Screenborn on this day today. They call it Screenborn. He's he, he was he appeared on screen for the first time on this day in 1934 uh, in Walt Disney's Silly Symphony short called The Wise Little Hen. Uh, the foul-mouthed duck has appeared in over 150 theatrical films. He is the champion. No other Disney character has appeared in more uh, than Donald Duck. And I once was reading a great article about him and Daffy and how they they said, well, we needed them because they were actually the two most interesting characters for either side of your cartoon battles that you went to. Um, his official birthday is listed as being in March. Uh, however, it is celebrated in because uh, that's what they said in a cartoon, but it's celebrated by the Disney company on this day. Uh, the voice of Mr. Duck was supplied by Clarence Nash between 1934 and 1985 and then Tony Anselmo since 1985. And on this day, Richard Pryor set himself on fire 
It was in 1980, so he uh, was very high on drugs. He poured 151-proof rum on himself, set himself on fire, uh, and then ran down the street. Um, He was subdued by police. He was taken to hospital, obviously treated for second and third-degree burns, uh, which covered more than half of his body. Uh, But as as all uh, performers love to do, that became content. He put it into his comedy show called Richard Pryor Live, and then he won a Grammy uh, for the best comedy recording. So I suppose it was all worth it in the end. So it's time to speak with Mr. Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles. Morena to you, Nathan. I was just thinking there, yeah. on your CV, would it look good to say, I was Donald Duck? Uh, I, I was so. Donald Duck's voice. Right? And your, your past experience, uh, Mr. Rory, well. <laughs> I set fire to myself. <laughs> I'm a doer. I'm a doer. That's I'm right. a doer. I'm a visionary. I'm a doer. And I, see, that's what you do. See, I'm already reshaping here. This is, this is the relaunching. This I'm is just nice. thinking about marketing, Just, right? And, yeah. And, and the way you sell yourself and how we have to in these days. Uh, that takes me to our first topic, which a couple of the banks at the moment are actually yeah. giving themselves a bit of a makeover. Kiwi Bank, you may have seen a lot of their adverts recently. Um and they came to us a little bit before they, they started the campaign and said, would you like to talk to us about our rebranding? And we said, what are you going to rebrand yourselves at? Well, we're, we're Kiwi Bank and uh, we're a New Zealand bank. So Are they going even more Kiwi? Uh, uh, that's right. How, how were you not a New Zealand bank before? Well, we just... Uh, uh, yeah, Never mind. It was a very torturous process, I have to say. Um, it, we had some... Difficult conversations because we wanted to ask some, we thought, reasonable questions. Uh, I won't split on them. BNZ's the other one that's uh, giving itself a bit of a makeover at the moment. And, you know, you may see uh, some stuff uh, around the traps about that. I just wonder whether these makeovers actually work for people. You know, and I just, I'd, you know, I'd invite our listeners to sort of tell yeah. us, does it make any difference to you? Yeah, you know, if there's a new set of colours and a new logo for you go, there's a boy with a monster, I'm banking there. Yeah, that's right. I'm 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 all for monsters because that's what banks are. They just devour my money uh, and just scare the hell out of me when so I try my, to get something. My friend who is a um, a writer of note, Nicholas Ward, um, one of his things he enjoys doing when he's a bit bored at home is communicating with company emails. He wrote to uh, the Westpac people about the ad with the big monster following them around and it's one of the funniest <laughs> email chains I've ever read and he put it on there and basically Westpac said, no, that that represents a big a big friend that can help you with things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so right. So, that's I mean, that's the thinking of it. The other thought that passed through my mind, and we've got a little bit on our business this morning, is uh, automation. It was uh, We're following up on the ports of Auckland having to write off $65 million from their failed project. And I'm just thinking, remember how so, you know, not so long ago we were talking about the robots will take over, we'll all, our jobs will be automated, uh, humans will be replaced. Uh, and I was just thinking, actually, human jobs are probably safe because... It's humans that have the notions of uh, the automation and designing it, mm. and we keep cocking it up in a really big way. <laughs> and this is just the latest example of how human foibles and human inability to actually you know, it's uh, good. replace ourselves, bang, yeah. you know, 
Our if you're at safe. the air and you you've designed an underperforming robot, you're a hero. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Thank you, Giles. Uh, Giles Beckford there, and of course the business team on Morning Report every morning at 10 to 7. To the money markets now, your New Zealand dollar can buy you 64.66 US cents, 89.57 Australian cents, 60.21 euro cents, 51.48 British pence, 4.32 yuan, 86.68 Japanese yen, 39.29 Russian rubles, and 14.07 Surinamese dollars. Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson will accompany Jacinda Ardern to meet the new Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, later today. I spoke to Mr Robertson about what he hopes will be achieved during the whirlwind visit, but first we discussed the Supreme Court's decision yesterday to quash the conviction of Alan Hall for a 1986 murder for which he spent 19 years in prison uh, after even the Crown admitted that there had been a miscarriage of justice. So I asked uh, Mr Robertson if those responsible for his wrongful conviction will be held to account. Yeah, look, obviously it's a court process in terms of that. Um, that will that will go through now. I mean, Mr Hall's had his conviction quashed by the Supreme Court, so there's no further no further um, work to be done there. The question then of who was involved, how that came to be, I have no doubt that that will be the subject of further discussion and, and investigation. But in terms of Mr Hall himself, we do have a process whereby people can apply for compensation for a wrongful conviction to the Minister of Justice. There's a series of criteria that need to be met and Cabinet makes uh, decisions around that. So uh, I have no doubt that Mr Hall and his supporters will, will be looking at that. So the government would support paying him compensation? So as I say, Cabinet has got some guidelines that were established, I think in 2020 was the, were the last time they were, were revised. And essentially the Minister of Justice can make the payments on the authorisation of of cabinet, we've got to satisfy a couple of criteria. Firstly, that the applicant is innocent on the base balance of probabilities, that the applicant has suffered losses of a type that should be compensated for, and that compensation is in the interests of of justice. I imagine people listening to this will be thinking, well, yeah, given the circumstances of Mr. Hall, he would fulfil all of that. Mm. We've got to go through the proper process and make sure that we we listen to any application that comes forward, and I'm sure the Minister of Justice will be watching out for that application and as I say I've no doubt Mr Hall and his supporters would be looking to apply through that process Yeah I mean 19 years spent in prison because there's some altered you know, witness statements I'm, I'm pretty sure he's got a, a very good case to apply for that compensation Let's move to business for you today, you're accompanying the Prime Minister to Australia, other than meeting with your counterparts face to face, what's the number one topic that you want to address with them? Yeah, so the Prime Minister's got her meetings with um, with Anthony Albanese, the new Australian Prime Minister, and we'll all be aware that some of the issues around the way in which New Zealanders are, are treated in Australia, their access to you know different forms of support. Um, students, um, those who are on benefits and so on, and also obviously the issue around 501s and the deportation. Those are those are areas we know that it's important for New Zealanders that we raise. But equally, we've got so much in common with Australia. We work so closely together from an economic point of view. In the world, we're often... Um, working together in areas like trade, um, but also in terms of multilateral forums at the UN and so on. So while there are issues in our relationship that we need to keep working on, we also got to remember we've got a lot in common and a lot to work together on. For me, my meetings are with my equivalent, the, the who's called the Treasurer over there, uh, and that's really an opportunity to sit down and talk about how our two countries can do business together, how we make it easier for companies to be working across the Tasman. I know that 
that Dr. Chalmers, who's taking on that role, is interested in some of the well-being budgeting that we've been doing over here. And I think both of us have got an interest in, in making sure that particularly at a multinational level, we get some reform of taxation so that companies are paying their fair share. So I'd imagine there'll be a range of those sorts of topics in my conversation and obviously a wider set within uh, Jacinda Ardern and Anthony Albanese's conversation. Right. Um, meanwhile, New South Wales, they're spending billions of dollars trying to attract nurses to go and work there. There's going to be some here that would want to go. Can, can you tell the Aussies or we knock it off, hands off our staff? Yeah. Look, you know, we, we obviously have had a really big focus on increasing uh, the number of nurses that we've got. We've got about 3,600 more since 2017. And the salaries of our graduate nurses are up by more than 20% since 2017 as well registered nurses um, top steps up by 25%. So we've been working really hard to improve conditions. We currently have the pay equity offer that um, was accepted and then wasn't accepted uh, by the nurses union, which will really significantly increase salaries as well. So we're really aware of that. We want to make sure that we continue to, to keep our graduate nurses here, keep our registered nurses here. We've always, in every occupation group, have the issue of being a, a small country that's next to a large country, uh, but we think we've got a pretty good offer there for our nurses to, to stay here. Because, you know, having a look at the salary differences, I mean, you, you can get more working in Australia as, as a health professional Can you, you know, than, than you can here. Do you know how many we're actually currently losing to Australia? I don't have um, those numbers, but, you know, as in any occupation group, there are people who will go from New Zealand to Australia, but there are equal, equally people from all around the world who want to come to New Zealand as well. And whilst, you know, as I say, you know, across many occupations, you see a salary difference between Australia and New Zealand, there are other reasons to want to be here. And particularly for New Zealanders, we were just discussing that there are some things that you can't get when you're in New Zealand. Your children aren't necessarily supported to be able to go off to university. There are difficulties accessing some other services as well. And obviously, there's all the reasons for family and otherwise to stay here. So from time to time, yes, we will lose some people overseas. Often they'll come back. But also there's a, a group of people who, who want to come from other countries to be here. And we're continuing to support them to come here to work as nurses and in other occupations. You know, one of the unfortunate things that we keep hearing a lot, and I know it's getting people worried, is are these horrific crimes being committed across the country in, involving guns. Does, does the police minister, Paul Tor Williams, and the way she's going about things. Has she got your full confidence? Absolutely she does and you, it's really important to remember what the different roles of people here are. The police are operationally independent so they make their decisions um, without a government interfering day to day and I think that's really important. We wouldn't want to live in a country where the government was dictating that. What the minister's responsible for is making sure that the police have got the resources they need to do their job and that there are the police on the beat that we need. And Minister Williams has been you know, part of a government where we've seen police numbers increase significantly. We've got more focus around organised crime, a commitment to have you know, one police officer for every 480 people. Um, we've got more work being done around criminal seizures of assets of organised crime. And you know, we are seeing a number of arrests and seizures of weapons and so forth and so on. So Minister Williams is responsible for making sure that all happens. And I think she should have our confidence for that reason. The commissioner is responsible for the day-to-day -day work and he also has our confidence. This is tough. You know, we do have a situation now where a couple of gangs, killer bees and the tribesmen are, are having significant uh, conflict. The police are working hard every single day to try to bring that back under control. And the government is backing them to do that. That's Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson.
Well, it's uh, 17 minutes to 6. I'm Nathan Radade, and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, having spent 19 years in prison, 36 years labelled as a murderer, Alan Hall's name is cleared at last. We will speak to his brother. The professionals of Morning Report have been scouring the country. Uh, to uh, bring you reports of the nation. Corin Dan, I believe, has been in Christchurch. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Yes, was in Christchurch for a couple of days. Kia ora, everybody. Uh, kia ora, Nathan. That was very nice, uh, catching up with friends and family. Yes. Uh, lovely old Christchurch. Yes, although came back to a ferocious thunderstorm in Wellington last night. Oh, beautiful. I think uh, there'll be a few Wellington listeners out there who will know what I mean. It was very <laughs> noisy in the middle <laughs> of the night. Two o'clock in the morning or something, I was rattling the windows with thunder. Um, we've got a busy show this morning. We've yep. got some interesting issues to look at. Obviously, the farm emissions issue with the greenhouse gases and farmers, this new plan. Uh, all sides of that. So there's the farmers who don't like it, the farmers who have actually designed it, which is the industry bodies, uh, and also environmentalists who don't like it either. Uh, so, yeah, that's a tricky one, that one, uh, as it uh, tries to work its way through. Hmm. We'll get some more on that. Uh, stagflation, horrible term, uh, rising prices and rising inflation and low growth at the same time. That is what the World Bank is warning of. We had it in the 70s. It was horrible. We had careless days, all that sort of stuff. Ah. We don't want to return to that. No. Um, but that is a risk. That is the problem. So we'll find out a bit more about that and that term. Uh, and, of course, we'll have more on the uh, Alan Hall mm. uh, case and the quashing uh, by the Supreme Court of those um, convictions. So, yeah, plenty to get through. Yeah, thank you. There we go. Well, uh, Alan Russell Hall, yeah, labelled a murderer for 36 years, 19 of which he spent behind bars. Yesterday, the Supreme Court quashed his conviction for the crime he did not commit. Hall was convicted of murdering Arthur Easton in his Papakura home in 1985 when Hall was just 23 years old. Alan Hall always maintained his innocence and after four previous appeals were turned down, a fifth saw the Crown accepting that key evidence about the identity of the true, of the true attacker was materially altered, leading to a miscarriage of justice. I spoke to Alan's brother Jeff, who's been tirelessly campaigning to clear his brother's name for all these years years and I asked him if he could to try and sum up how he was feeling oh sum it up 36 years sum it up oh my god uh, hey look I just don't really have words it's just such a good feeling you know um, I made a promise to my mother when she passed away um, she was uh, Ellen's uh, biggest uh, supporter and I said I, I would uh, before she passed I'd, I'd take the mental and run with it, and I have. And uh, you know I made a promise that I'd, I'd return her far now to her, you know, uh, free as he should be. Um, what was delivered today in the judgments uh, at the Supreme Court was just outstanding. It was everything that was said over the last 36 years that Ellen had nothing to do with this. Evidence was hidden. Evidence was changed to make it look like it was Ellen. It was not. We. You, you know, how, how do you forgive something like that? Yeah, I mean, this, this didn't happen by accident. No. Uh, it didn't happen by mistake. It happened by design. And the New Zealand police and Crown Law have got to have answers to this because they can't do this to a New Zealand citizen. And then we let it fall, uh, fall through the, tra- the cracks. You know, it's 
that's wrong in every way. Yeah, it is. I mean, Jeff, when you were waiting to, to actually hear these words that it had been quashed, was there a little voice in the back of your head thinking like, oh, they, they, you know, I, I, I don't want to hope too much here because I, I bet that they, you know, I bet oh. they stuff us again? Or were you sure oh. it was going to happen this time? Oh, absolutely. You, you, you hit the nail on the head. You know, we've been through this uh, through a trial, you know, feeling that, hey, this is a trial. It's so obvious that he didn't do it. So, that was sorted out. No, it didn't. Oh, okay. Well, let's go through an appeal. All our hopes laid on appeal. And exactly the same thing. The appeal should sort it out. We've, uh, it did not. So then we applied to the gov- Governor General, not once, not twice, and three times. And two of those times with, with evidence that showed it could never have been Alan. Yeah. And we lost those as well. And there is no reason. And that's what was it today. There was absolutely no reason that those appeals... Oh, those 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 four or six to the governor general should not have lost, <laughs> and that's why this is a gross miscarriage of justice. You know, not only to Alan, it's, it's to his family, yeah. but it's also to the people. It's to the people, yes. and the, the victims of 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 that brutal attack that night. <laughs> Yeah, because you're right. You're right. They they deserve the justice to find who who did this as as well. Because yeah. it certainly wasn't Absolutely. your brother. I'm just thinking, yeah, Jeff. Gosh, you know, you know, like apart from apart from just the absolute love of your brother and and the duty, for, you know, that you want to do this for your mum as well. How do you keep going through this? Because the amount of times that you just must have been crestfallen and and like there must have been days where you were like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Uh, it's from a big fun now. You know, when we have our down days, and now when I, when I, the, the mantle got a little bit too heavy for me to carry at a certain time, mm. my brother was there to give me a hand, and we had both hands on that mantle, and um, and we just worked through it that way. Uh, but you know, we, it's it's when we we get people like Tim McKinnell, you know, he's I, he's a white knight in uh, wrongful convictions in New Zealand, and you know, when he came along and he looked at that and he said, "Oh my gosh." This is so wrong. Mm. And then he got going. And then uh, with the uh, lawyer, Nick Jessel, amazing dedicator, he helped out. And that just gave us such a boost when they came along. But, you know, th- that was in 2018, 2019. We, and we, it was a long time in between that we had a lot of stress, a lot of worry, a lot of how can we fix this? Mm. And we tried and tried and tried. How can we fix this? But it was this team. It was this team that got together, a, a special team. And... And I think, you know, um, it's, I just don't want to see this to happen to anybody else. It should not happen to in our country at this time. And I, I just, I feel for it. I, I worry too because this happened to us. And, you know, there are people uh, that English is not their first language. Yeah. They've gone through this, but how do they fight back? Mm. And there are people that don't have fun out. How do they fight back? Very, very difficult, and it does happen. Wrongful convictions are real in New Zealand. Yeah, do, do, you know your your trust in police. Then is it the do, do you, is it the police or is it the courts that that you had the hardest time? You know, thinking like, can I trust you? Well, look, this this couldn't have happened without both of them being party of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you just if the if the crown were doing their job, they and the evidence is put forward to the crown that was corrupted like it was, uh, the Crown would have said, no, 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 we're not doing that. Alan would have never been arrested. The Crown had to know what was going on. But unfortunately, at this stage, what we've got is the evidence, the proof that it's the police that 
uh, change dividends. So, you know, it's also the judicial system. When you actually move into the 406s, um, so after the after the police put Alan in jail hmm. and sorry, arrested Alan uh, with this evidence, and after the, the prosecution put Alan in jail with that, that evidence, you've also had the judicial system kept him in jail. So it wasn't only one, two, it was all three of the systems that failed Alan. Yeah. And that's what we need answers on. How, why, and who. And and, and you deserve those answers too, and you, you're right to ask for them. We all do. Yeah. We all do. And, you know, because I'm thinking here, he was, he was 23 years old at the time. Uh, you know, a 23-year-old man here with autism, he's, he's, he's wrongly there sent off. He spends 19 years in prison. What does that do to someone like that? Like, can you? what are your memories of your brother before this happened and then after? Like, because, I, I mean, I did see some footage and he still looks like quite a resilient guy, which I, I, I find amazing, but there must be a, a difference there, surely. I had to think my brother comes from another planet, the how he's so resilient. I have never seen it before. He's, And I think it is actually part of autism. You know, they like routine. Um, and he, But he has a motto, and that is live day by day. And if this day is in jail, then that's what he's doing. He's going to make the best out of it. And, and then my kids are yelling at me in the car, come on, Dad. <laughs> so I'll just walk away and ignore them for a moment, bad parents on 101. <laughs> hey, um, <laughs> hey, look, um, yeah, so so I'm really proud of him. I think it comes from parenting. Um, it comes from part of his autism that he has, mm. but he's also his own individual mana. Mm. He's, I will live day by day. Uh, you know, it stems right back to the first trial, and he knew two days into it, I'm going to be convicted of this. And, um, and I was still hoping that he's right up to the last, you know, the last the last reading from the from the judge. Um, but he he just had this feeling, and uh, it's he's just extra special in that way. You know, if there's anything I could ask of anybody, um, Alan has been damaged. He has been damaged. You cannot survive in prison for that long without damage, and and hurt. You know, hurt from the system. And I've noticed it. You know, with him. When people come up to me, oh, are you Alan Hall? Congratulations. How did you do this? And pat him on the back. Give him a hug. Mm. And and that uplifts him. That heals him. And that's the biggest thing I could ask of anybody. You know, if you see Alan, don't be shy. He doesn't bite. You know, shake his hand. Yeah. Give him a hug. We'll just say, cheer, bruh, <laughs> what you've done. You have, you have hung on. And give him the money. And, 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 and he deserves it. And that's going to heal the guy, you know? And um, so, yeah, so I'm just proud of him. So much. I mean, Jeff. Now you've you've mentioned Fano, you've mentioned family, and one one of the things is to know, you know, you know, the love and support of of a family. I you know that Alan looks at you and your family, and he knows that he's got that. I I, I think you know you're to be commended for this as well, Jeff, uh, to, for for going through this emotional roller coaster as well through the entire thing, and then like you say, picking it up and carrying it on for your for your, for your mother. I mean, like the name is cleared. What did you, you know, raise a glass of sparkling water to mum or something for that one? Well, you know what, we walked out, we, we, we got the ruling from the Crown, uh, from the from the, uh, the Supreme Court. I think it was about 4.30 today. Um, at 4.35 we were outside I, and I spoke to the media for about three minutes. And at 4.40 I was 
on a taxi coming to the airport and I've just arrived back in Auckland. So, you know, it's haven't had a chance, but the first thing Alan wanted when uh, we got on the plane and, and the, the carts came through the aisle, yeah. do you have Chardonnay? <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first wine he's had in 40 years. Wow, and 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 on his way to Wellington was the first flight on that he's had in forty years. That's Jeff Hall. Uh, don't get excited. Air New Zealand aren't serving Chardonnay on uh, regional flights right now. But uh, yeah, real honour to uh, get to speak to Jeff. There a lot of feedback coming in this morning uh, from you. Uh, yep, someone saying prosecute those who arranged that conviction. That's their turn inside. Many of you talking about the the, uh, the proposal of the the four day week as well. Angela and Rotorua's return to full time teaching uh, says the NCEA is a huge amount of work uh, for a teacher. You got your admin and all sorts of things to go. I believe a four day teaching week would make an enormous difference to teachers and students uh, because right now I have no life. Chris and Nelson says yeah you know the thing though we do 100% of our work and 80% of the time and then as time goes by employment markets change we'll end up having to do 120% of the previous work uh, when we were going you know what I mean there's, there's maths and there's movements and all sorts people smarter than me know about that and Steve here's some wisdom a week that finishes on Thursday is shorter than a week that begins on Tuesday. We might have to explore that tomorrow as a poll question. You can listen to First Up any time you like on podcast. Just go searching for it. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. If you like the show live, we'll be back in your ears. A purple.